The world that we live in is filled with chaos. We are all searching for meaning in our lives, but we often get lost along the way. We all must ultimately realize that meaning is found in responsibility for our actions, for the way we live our life, and for the people in our lives. We don't have to stay in the chaos. We can choose to bring order to our lives. Join us for a fresh perspective on the practical steps we can take to become who God intended us to be and to realize what our calling is. This is Coming Out of Chaos. Welcome back to the Coming Out of Chaos podcast. My name is Michael Bocklig. I am your host. And as always, I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Bryce Kirk. We are back in the upper room at St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Springdale, Arkansas for this recording. And Bryce, it's great to be back here with you, my friend. Always good to be with you, Michael, especially in the upper room. Absolutely. Well, we are now deep into the nativity season, and our church just had a wonderful celebration of the Feast of St. Nicholas at our local parish. It was our patronal feast since our church is named St. Nicholas Church, and we really had a great weekend together as a parish community. It started last weekend on Saturday with a retreat at our church, and we watched a documentary about the life of the real St. Nicholas, and then we had a great discussion about it led by our priest, Father Paul Fuller. I know you attended that retreat, Bryce, and so did a lot of others. We, I think we had 50 people in attendance or close to that, and it was really one of the biggest highlights of that weekend for me. Yeah, we had quite a few people here, which was wonderful to see. Um, especially kind of, you know, with COVID still kind of being on the minds of people, um, but people still wanted to show out and show up for St. Nicholas Day and being able to watch a documentary on the real life of St. Nicholas, which, you know, so many people, and maybe it's just an American thing, maybe it's a Coca-Cola thing. Yeah. So many Americans just see him as this kind of big jolly guy in a suit. But from what we know as Orthodox Christians, there's so much more there and there's so much more value that we can really take from his life and the life that he lived for Christ. Yeah, definitely. And after that retreat, we attended Great Vespers at our church, and we were joined by parishioners from our sister parish, St. John of Chicago Orthodox Church. And that church is located only about 15 miles away from us, and it's by far the closest Orthodox church to us in the area. And we had a lot of people show up for Vespers that night from both churches and had some great fellowship together following that service. The priest at St. John of Chicago Church, Father John Wheeling, unfortunately was sick that weekend and couldn't join us. He actually had to cancel services last Sunday at his church due to his illness. So we were again joined by many of the parishioners from that church for Orthros and Divine Liturgy the following day. And we ended up setting an attendance record at our church. It was really packed that day. And we had a potluck lunch together after the liturgy. And it was such a blessing to celebrate the Feast of St. Nicholas with members from our sister parish in attendance. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to, you know, be packed into a small parish like our own with so many people just worshiping God, you know, taking into account the life of St. Nicholas as well. It was a beautiful thing to witness and the choir was on point. Everybody was really in good spirits in the building, it seemed like. And it was just a beautiful thing to be a part of. Absolutely. Well, Bryce, in our last two podcast episodes, we discussed some really important stuff. We talked about the spiritual crisis that men are facing in our dominant culture today. And we also talked about some of the origins of that crisis and what our response should be as Orthodox Christian men. 
In our last episode, we discussed that we are told in the United States that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we talked about how that pursuit of happiness part has really wrecked havoc with us as men. We really need to train ourselves to not seek happiness and to instead seek holiness. Now, this is a lot harder than it sounds. We have to face up to the fact that we've been conditioned by our culture for our entire lives and that each of us have bought into, to some extent, the concept that life is all about seeking our own happiness. I mentioned in our first podcast episode that I used to play football. When I first started playing football in high school, it was my sophomore year, and I started playing on defense. I had never really played any contact sports prior to that, and I remember that I needed to kind of retrain myself to intentionally hit someone. That may sound kind of silly to most people because we all know that there's lots of hitting in football, but it isn't something that we're really used to doing. We don't walk around intentionally trying to run into people, and we actually kind of do the opposite. We try not to run into each other or into objects each and every day as we move around. So training yourself to actually run into people on purpose is something that takes time and intentional effort to start doing. And I think this is a great analogy for what we're talking about. We've been so conditioned to seek our own happiness really in everything, in our careers, in our marriages, in our friendships, I dare say even in our experiences at church. And we aren't used to thinking about pursuing holiness instead of happiness. Yeah, Michael, I really thought the conversation in our last episode was a rather interesting one, to say the least, just given that, you know, there is this idea of pursuing happiness. And what exactly does that mean? You know, I have people in my life that tell me, do this because it makes you happy or Mm -hmm. do that because it makes you happy or, you know, my main goal in life is to be happy. And while it's a good thing to be happy, it's not necessarily always a good thing to be in a happy place because you're pursuing other goals. Mm. So if you are to structure your life in the pursuit of happiness, not only are you necessarily neglecting things such as suffering or, you know, the more mundane aspects of life, which is what I'm getting at here is that to be holy is not always a grand thing, at least as you perceive it yourself. Many people have this idea that they want to be famous or they want to make it on the big stage. They want everybody to know their name. Everybody wants their 15 minutes. And in leading a holy life, you're not really getting a ton of those moments. But what you are getting is a life more fulfilled, a life more sustainable, a life where the highs are not too high and the lows are not too low, but everything is sustained. And you get that through your community, obviously, and you get that through your own pursuits as well. But this does make me think of the quote from St. Isaac the Syrian, this life has been given for repentance, do not waste it in vain pursuits. Mm. So with that, what does that mean? You're not pursuing things of vanity, you're not pursuing things that do not last. Repentance is something that you may have to do over and over and over and over again. You may fall countless times, but when you fall, you get back up. And in that, that seems like a very mundane thing, but it's something that matters so much more than pursuing your 15 minutes. Yeah, Bryce, and something that you said made me think about the way, especially people in society these days, view suffering as something that's just unacceptable, right? That suffering should never exist, that it's always a bad thing. And the true Christian perspective on suffering is much different than I think the way that society kind of teaches us that that all forms of suffering are just unacceptable. You know, in true Christianity, the teachings of Christ tell us that there will be suffering. And if we are living a true and authentic Christian life, Christ really helps to bring meaning to that suffering. Wouldn't you say? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do think being able to confront those realities as they come to you is something that's important. Father Paul, over here at our church a few weeks ago, was talking in one of the catechumen classes about how people come into the church for various reasons. Some of them maybe are not the best reasons, but at the end of the day, why do you come to church? You come to church because of Christ. And in all that, he gives purpose to your suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't want to phrase it as, oh, you're going to suffer anyway, so you need something to cope with. But in his life and in his passion and in the lives of the saints, in our own lives even, we may have days that we may seem like we're going through the motions. We may have days where it may seem that things are just mundane. There are actions that don't matter, but everything we do in this life matters. And at the end of the day, being able to thank God that you woke up. I remember Father John told me once, he said, when you wake up in the morning, you thank God that you have another day. Mm. And you look around you and you see what's around. You know, you see the birds and the trees. You see the sky. You see your friends. Everything. And that seems so small, but that matters so much. Yeah, and I think that the mentality of, of just perceiving suffering is always an unacceptable situation. It, it also kind of speaks to this culture that we have where we're taught to seek happiness. But we really shouldn't seek happiness. We should seek holiness. Because you know what the fruit of holiness is? It's joy. And joy is different than happiness. And the joy of the Lord is your strength, Scripture says. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In there, it doesn't say anything about happiness. So for those listening, don't seek it. It's elusive. It's a fantasy. It's not really real. Seek holiness, and you will find joy. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. I can say, Bryce, that for most of my life, I was really pursuing my own happiness, especially in my younger years. And I really wasted so much of my time in vain pursuits. It wasn't until I started serving others, serving my neighbor and serving the church, that I truly started to experience what joy is. The thing about happiness is that it never quite satisfies us. When we finally achieve the level of happiness that we're pursuing, it just isn't enough, and we end up pursuing a more intense kind of happiness with something else. And I think, too, Michael, that looking toward the definition of joy right? Like people often will confuse joy and happiness together. And they're obviously not the same thing. I don't want to say it's like a mindset. I think that it's something that puts your experience into perspective, right? And so, you know, bringing up Bishop Nicholas, for example, he visited our parish a couple years ago, and he met the men in the church, and he was talking about the difference between happiness and joy. Yeah. And how that may have seemed as a shock to some people, and that seemed like a shock to me, Because while it was something I'd known since I was young, being able to hear it from somebody who's in a position of authority, who's somebody that we trust, who's somebody that is wise, that makes all the difference in the world. And it's it also brings up the example of the difference between being nice and being kind. Yeah. Right? Bishop Nicholas said one time that being nice is being fake. Mm -hmm. And kindness is true. It's different. It's done with love. And I think that the same thing with joy. Joy is not always self-fulfilling. It's not always for you. You can find it through your neighbor. You can find it through your service to the church, as you've mentioned, Michael. Happiness to me at times is a very individualistic thing. It's something in my own pursuits. I want to be wealthy. I want to be famous. I want to be happy at the end of the day. And while people will take that and, you know, put it into the we perspective, you know, they'll say it's something that we desire. It may not actually be something that at the end of the day is viable and it definitely doesn't last. Not the same way that joy does, and not the same way that Christ does eternally. 
Yeah, and I want to also add, there's nothing wrong with being happy. I think that there are lots of different things that can happen in life that cause happiness. And so it's not something that we should curse or think that is inherently bad at all. And I think the other thing that's interesting is, as you were talking, Bryce, it reminded me of the fact that happiness is really fleeting. We may experience happiness, and that may be a blessing from God for the time that we have it. But as soon as we're no longer happy, it isn't just crisis mode. All of a sudden, now we have to do anything possible to get to that happiness feeling. Because again, those those emotions are fleeting, and they're not something that we should constantly pursue, or we'll just be pursuing it for our whole lives, and then it could be leading us down a very dark path. Well, and you'll be constantly disappointed at that point. Yeah, that's Because right. you keep trying and trying and trying to do something. And something may make you happy in the moment. Right. But a week later... That feeling's gone. Yeah. And you end up wasting a lot of time, essentially spinning your wheels and trying to find what that next happiness experience is going to be. Mm -hmm. Let's go back into a little bit of church history with this now. The Roman Emperor Constantine ruled what we now call the Byzantine Empire from the year 306 to 337 AD. The first time he really saw the bishops of the church gathered together was at the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council. The thing that really impressed him were the scars that the bishops were carrying because of the intense persecution they had faced. All these guys were scarred, and many of them had faced torture. Some of them were missing fingers. A lot of them were older. They all came to Nicaea to solve the grave problem of Arianism. We know from history that that problem was resolved. But again, what really impressed Constantine when he saw those men, those bishops coming to that council, he saw those men as being soldiers. He thought of them as warriors, and he saw them as being valiant. When he saw them, he thought, these are men of virtue. That's what really impressed him. That's who our fathers in the faith are. That is who our examples are. Those early church fathers that lived during the time of intense Christian persecution were not pursuing their own happiness. That's for sure. Not even close. They were pursuing holiness. And for them, holiness came at a great cost. This reminds me, Michael, of when I was young and there was a Christian music group out that was called DC Talk. And they had released a set of books called the Jesus Freak books. They had this, you know, the whole Jesus Freak movement of the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. And from what I gathered there in these books was the stories of martyrs. Now, these guys weren't Orthodox. They weren't, you know, of a uh, apostolic faith at the time, and neither was I. But reading about people in history, like St. Ignatius, for example, of Antioch, he was martyred. We have an icon here of uh, a scroll of his from one of his writings that he wrote on his way to the arena to be eaten by lions. And in our iconography, you can see the sufferings of the saints as well. And so that makes my problems seem a little bit mundane. And <laughs> That's right. Right. And at the end of the day, witnessing all of these people, men and women in the early church and even today, you know, in the Middle East and other parts of the world, who will confess Christ with their blood. And that is what they're doing. And that's what a lot of these men that came to the council at Nicaea and further councils as well, they endured persecution. Some of it was from the state. Some of it was from foreign powers. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's something to look back on and say that these people took this very seriously. Yeah. And I knew from a young age that no one who would go to their death would do so for a lie. No one would do so if they thought that what they believed wasn't true. And being able to witness that in text, in writing, in the stories of the church fathers that we read during Orthros every Sunday, 
in the Synaxarion. Last week, we read about St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Mm-hmm. You know, as we mentioned beforehand, who is commonly referred to today as Santa Claus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this man endured a lot of persecution. He was even removed from the council for his valiance against Arius. Yeah. Which, you know. It's a great story. It, absolutely. And and for those who may not know, he essentially, as it's described, either slapped or punched Arius in the face mm-hmm. for his heresy, and he was removed from the council. But he was restored. Indeed, he was restored. But the point that we're getting at, obviously, is that these people, this is their life. Yeah. And this is what matters. And they live this life not for themselves, not mm-hmm. for their own glory. You can't see your own glory if you've died. But they live their lives for Christ. And it's really inspiring, Bryce, to think about those bishops of that first council and and what they must have thought coming together really for the first time in that large-scale way and and how easy we really have it in the United States, where we've lived essentially in a country that, you know, gives us the freedom to practice whatever religion we want. Now, there are parts of our culture that maybe have become more hostile towards Christianity, but those early fathers in the early Christian church, they were exposed to the kind of suffering that, just like you said, make my suffering just seem very trivial in comparison. And it's really inspiring to think about those early church fathers. So what do we learn from those early church fathers? I personally think what we have to do as men is we have to go into this culture that surrounds us with that same resolve to be faithful to the truth, no matter what the cost or penalties might be. Now, I'm not saying we should fight the culture wars on a political level. You shouldn't do it that way. Some people do, but most of us don't. What you have to do is you have to say no to the death and the darkness, You actually have to say no to the evil and to the lies. You say yes to life in the spirit of our forefathers of Nicaea. That is what you've got to do. What will make you a man is to grow into the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it is according to your own personal distinctiveness, gifts, and abilities, and your faithfulness. Be who you are. We need to man up. If we claim to be Christians, we need to live the faith and not just talk about it. This is how we bring light into the world. And as others see us living as authentic Christians, it will naturally attract others and it will lead them to Christ. Yeah, Michael, and I definitely think that's something that I personally need to take more account of myself. You know, being able to really believe what we talk about on this podcast and what we really believe when we go to church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. You know, being able to live this life. I've mentioned it before, but Father Seraphim Rose of Blessed Memory has a quote about this when he says orthodoxy is not just a name that you call yourself it is a life that you live and that's part of the reason why i think that you know we look around us and we see the saints on the walls we see the saints in our prayer corner we read about them we read about christ we read about the scriptures and we see people who were valiant who did not give up on what they believed in up until the end you know and many fell king david is an example and many got back up And so, you know, looking at people wanting to grow their church, for example, Mm -hmm. right, it's about the quality of how you do so and not the quantity necessarily. I think it's a wonderful thing to have a big church. Yeah. I do. Like we had, you know, over 100 people here last week, if not more than that. And it was a beautiful thing to see. It was a beautiful thing to be a part of, to see that many people in Arkansas of all places who are Orthodox Christians. And I really think that you know, people come in and we need to be ready for them. We need to be able to greet them. We need to be able to welcome them in as our own. 
as they are able and as we are able. And so, you know, I think of a, a former roommate of mine who recently converted to Orthodoxy this year, and he was looking for something that he thought was real. He was looking for something that he thought was genuine, and he found that here. And he's moved away since, and he's got a community out there where he lives. And it's been wonderful to see his own growth and my own throughout that whole process. No glory to myself at all. All glory be to God. But at the same time, being able to just see people come into the church and see how it is transforming them in the way in which they need to be transformed. And, I mean, like we said earlier, at the end of the day, they're coming for Christ, and he's unveiling so much to them. Yeah, and I love what you said, Bryce, about that quality versus the quantity. And you mentioned how, I mean, everybody wants to grow their church. Everybody wants to see their church grow, and and that's a good thing. But I think if you just focus on the numbers and you don't focus on the quality of what's actually taking place in your parish community, then you've kind of got it backwards. I think a lot of times the best way to grow your church is to just live the faith. And that's something that I think we all have to really focus on. When we live the faith together in our communities, in our parishes, that becomes very attractive to people. When visitors come and they see that, they experience what authentic Christianity is, they don't want to leave. And they, they definitely want to come back. I think maybe that speaks more to the, the retention of visitors coming to our churches when they can sense that they're truly in a real church family of people that are made up, of people that live the faith together. It's something that's just very attractive to them. One other thing about being authentic, though, just being authentic with each other as men, it means we also have to be willing to be vulnerable. And being vulnerable is not something that a lot of men are comfortable with talking about because we've been conditioned to think that showing any vulnerability is a sign of weakness and that we shouldn't want to appear weak. Sometimes the people don't even come to church to talk to a priest or to their fellow brothers in a parish to discuss problems they're facing or to discuss the sins they're enslaved to is because they just feel ashamed. But we must be in communion with each other, which means confessing our sins one to another. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says... Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Today, the feminist dialectic is so strong in the culture that sometimes we confuse vulnerability with being feminine-like. But it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that we accede to that idea of what the male is supposed to be. Yeah, Michael, and I think that brings up an important point because so many people in American culture, are seeking authentic people. And they themselves are seeking to be authentic with other people. Like We've had many people who've come into our church, converts or inquirers, who have said, I am just so shocked by how real a lot of these people seem to be. Yeah. And to be authentic, you have to be vulnerable. Yeah, and okay. vulnerability, at the end of the day, obviously does take a bit of courage. Mm-hmm. You have to go ahead and say, like, I'm lack of a better term, I'm confessing this to you about myself right? because I trust you. And that other person obviously will reciprocate that trust if it's there, right? And so I think a lot of people in the culture are confused in general. I know I was. I know at times I still can be. You look around you and you see all the movies, you know, you see all of the social media icons, you see people who are not authentic in the way in which they present themselves. You know, I've talked to people recently who have said to me, you know, Oh, have you seen so-and-so on Instagram? They seem to do, be doing well. It's like at the end of the day, God willing, they are. But who's to say? And people will put up a front. And I think COVID kind of exacerbated the issue. Yeah. 
in the sense of people are torn away from each other due to lockdowns, due to social distancing. And some of these measures perhaps have been a little too damaging to people. I know people personally who don't leave their homes. Mm-hmm. All they do is FaceTime their friends or they get DoorDash. You know, they're, I don't know if it's out of fear. I don't know if it's out of laziness, but it's something that I think, for lack of a better term, may be problematic going forward because we do need to be fully human to be truly human. Part of that is being in a community of other people, people that you trust and people that you can be vulnerable with, people right. that you can reciprocate that courage with. And it makes you stronger at the end of the day. I know I felt immense joy from being able to tell people things that I thought or who I actually was, right? Not just in the sense of like, oh, this isn't popular to say, but this is who I am. It's really freeing. And I love what you said about vulnerability actually taking courage, a masculine virtue. Because if we're vulnerable with each other, and if we're, you know, going to confession with our priest, as an example, you know, what are we doing? We're admitting our sins, and we're taking responsibility for them, and then literally changing our mind. So say you have an addiction to pornography. We've talked about that recently. And you want to be free from it. What you're doing is you're admitting your powerlessness over the addiction, and you seek healing through the sacrament of confession. By doing this, you're facing your own shame. Because sins of a sexual nature also carry with it a lot of shame. And the only way you can overcome shame is to face it. So vulnerability, properly defined then, is actually an expression of masculine courage. Because courage is a virtue, and it's the first step in learning how to be virtuous on the path to holiness. But we should not think that vulnerability means conforming ourselves to some feminist demand of what a male should be. Now, we don't go to the other extreme and then become obsessed with things like, I don't know, bodybuilding or having the biggest truck or the loudest motorcycle, because things like that are just an expression of deformed masculinity based on some insecure masculine identity. And it really needs to be a rejection of both. And I think, Michael, that, you know, in a time of kind of uh, misplaced identity, shall we say, a lot of people, including myself at times, especially when I was younger, found our identity in what we did, what we have, right, instead of actually who we are, Mm. right? I mean, this can even be malformed in the church. People can see themselves as a churchgoer. They're obsessed with doing things for the church rather than their own salvation, right, or other people. And so think of it this way as if it is a spectrum of things, as you would let a political spectrum, for example. There are people who align themselves on certain elements of that spectrum, and that can go one way or it can go the other. Mm-hmm. And for the purpose of this part, you know, we're talking about becoming overly macho. We're talking about doing things as a direct rebellion, Yeah, perhaps becoming a toxic person. You're becoming obsessed with the way that you look, how you project yourselves to others. But at the end of the day, that kind of goes back to talking about the mundane, in the sense of being holy and, you know, lifting weights, you know, obviously you got to go places if you're driving, right? Like these are good things. Mm -hmm. It's good to hit the iron. It's good to get strong. It's good to take care of your body. But obviously anything that becomes an absolute obsession of yours and takes you away from God, takes you away from your community, that's a different thing that we get involved with. And I do think that men typically will become a caricature of themselves. Mm. They become a caricature of something that they perceive to be masculine rather than taking up virtues, perhaps, of courage or honor or tradition or virtue or patriotism or anything like that that people may find themselves being in. And obviously, 
not to be a hypocrite, but I look at those virtues and I want to aspire to be those virtues. I want to aspire to have those virtues rather than go through life and parody around as something that I'm not. Yeah, no, that's those are really good thoughts, Bryce. And I think about the two kind of extremes that men can sometimes gravitate towards, either that softer, you know, that softer side where they're basically toning everything down and they're having a soft approach with everything. And then the opposite extreme where, you know, you're becoming obsessed with something that's overly macho and you're taking it to just an unhealthy level where you're putting all of your identity in whatever that thing is that you're obsessed with. But we really need to reject both of those extremes and instead come into a rediscovery of finding who we are in Christ. And understanding that process is not a negation of our own identities, but it's actually an affirmation of it. If you lose yourself, you will find yourself. That's the meaning of Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, where Christ says, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So to be a true and authentic Christian, and this is the Orthodox faith, it means you discover who you really are. It means you're comfortable in your own skin. It also means that you recognize and you begin to see the development of the talents and the gifts and the abilities that God has given you as part of your divine calling. And all of us had better fulfill that because that is what is expected of us. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask for more. And that's from Luke chapter 12, verse 48. I think we need to take a hard look at ourselves as men and look at what we've been given by God. We need to take stock of what spiritual gifts we've been blessed with, and then we need to act. We need to apply those spiritual gifts in our church communities. I think we as men have lost our focus and that we've lacked organization, and we've kind of lacked the vision to do this in a coordinated way in the church. In our last podcast episode, we talked about one of the primary things that has led men astray is the collapse of morality that started with the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Although, I think the intellectual antecedent for that was laid out a lot longer before that. Abortion, for example, was the cause that second-wave feminists united around. And the result was essentially women were targeted, and many have been deceived by a very demonic ideology. This ripping apart of the family unit has had devastating consequences. When men gave up their divine calling to protect women and children, he lost himself. Today, men are even more lost because things have been accelerated by technology, as we've talked about before. And the normalization of immoral behavior has just been accelerated as well through various media, such as magazines, through movies, and also TV shows in the popular culture. You know, Michael, the last thing that you mentioned I thought was particularly interesting, especially because you and I, as well as many Americans, do love to watch TV. Yeah. And we have our favorite sitcoms, you know, or our favorite shows on HBO or what have you. And I think one thing that's important to understand through this is it does project a fantasy Mm. of how life should be for a young person or for anybody, really. So thinking about TV shows like Friends or one popular one when I was in high school was How I Met Your Mother. Mm Mm-hmm. And people identifying with certain characters or wanting to take on certain attributes of characters. And an example would be Barney from How I Met Your Mother. Mm-hmm. He had this kind of playboy lifestyle. You know, he had this big old book of being legendary, you know, pulling moves on people, that whole thing. And so many people thought, man, that is the life I want to have. Right. And what it does is it kind of creates a 
malformed version of what life is supposed to be, right? It takes away again from the more mundane, for lack of a better term, the more normal lifestyle of having a family, you know, being a normal person, pursuing holiness, especially like you don't really see that in a lot of TV shows and people get latched onto that. There's no more, you know, oh, it's only a TV show because it becomes so entrenched in your mind that that's the life that you want to have. That's the life that you want to live. And really, at the end of the day, you're left feeling empty following something. And I don't necessarily believe that people go, oh, I just I want to be just like that person on the TV show that I watched. But I do think that part of what goes on in the TV shows really does bleed into people's minds, into their psyche, which isn't to say that, you know, oh, we need to ban it all. But it's something to be cognizant of for sure. Yeah, Bryce, and I think a lot of those TV shows, some of those that you mentioned, and one in particular, for example, the Friends TV show, there was a huge cult following of that TV show, and people really kind of idealized the lifestyle that was happening in that show. And, you know, it was a funny show, and it it got very popular, but I think that show and many others just over the last, especially the last few decades, have contributed to this just change in our culture Hollywood is a big driver for a lot of the things that we see because, you know, people tend to gravitate towards that kind of entertainment and then they see themselves in those roles. That's kind of what you were hinting at. There's a lot of TV shows, too, where the dad or the father figure in the series is kind of demeaned. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, what does that mean for masculinity, for example? And that brings me back to something that we talked about a couple of times in previous episodes, this concept of toxic masculinity You know, toxic masculinity is really just a construct that's been just kind of pulled out of thin air, but it's a concept that it's really very anti-male. Now, things have definitely collapsed in the culture around us, and there's a lot of bad guys out there. Men need men. Men will follow men. And if there's no good men to follow, guys end up doing bad stuff. But the reason they do bad stuff is because they are men, and there's a hierarchy in creation. This may be a very unpopular view, to some out there, but there is a hierarchy. There's an order to creation. Hierarchy is written into the very fabric of creation, which creates an imperative with men. Men have a higher responsibility. They have a different responsibility, and that is to take care of women and children. You know, Bryce, one of the most interesting things about feminism is that the earliest feminists were actually pro-life. And I think that feminism was kind of hijacked at some point. Because they started really as being a lot of people who believed in the sanctity of life. What ended up happening, though, became kind of a class warfare that was constructed between male and female, and it drew from cultural Marxism. The warfare that was created is driven by energies, and they were deconstructive energies. They deconstructed what has been received in the hopes that they were going to reconstruct it into something else. But that never happens because the reconstruction is against nature. And in the end, nature always wins. Well, Michael, this does bring up more or less a historical point, Mm -hmm. shall we say. Cultures have always changed throughout time. I mean, we've seen that in church history, for example, with how the Roman Empire obviously did change its tone toward Christianity in the 4th century, right? It went from being completely outlawed to this is okay to eventually becoming the state religion That's right. Of the Roman Empire. Yeah. So in our own culture, in Western culture in general, there's been a bit of a change as men and women have both entered the marketplace, for example. Mm -hmm. Men and women in the culture today, as they have probably for the last 50 or 60 years, 
have begun to see themselves as being competitors in the marketplace mm. rather than being partners in life. And that's an unfortunate thing that has happened. And so kind of being able to see that class warfare is something that has occurred between men and women. And it's an obvious thing. And today you really don't see as many families. Mm. You really don't see big families, for example. My parents have four children, for example, right? And many marriages will end up in divorce. I believe the average uh, length of a marriage in Arkansas is close to eight years is all. Yeah. You know, and it's an unfortunate thing to witness that marriages don't hold up as well as they did. People have different goals nowadays as well. Most of the time it is to focus on your career, right? I just want to be happy in my career. I don't want to be tied down by family life, many people say. Right. Right? It's not something that you want to see. And I do think that, you know, as time has gone on, people have really embraced a more individualistic look at their own lives. And men and women alike, they're in the marketplace. They want a career. Having a family is something else. It's something tertiary to that. And, you know, the average family in America, if they have any children, they're probably going to have two, which is right on par with the death rate in the country. Mm. And that's just something to look at and go, what went wrong? Maybe it's more expensive, sure, but still, at the end of the day, raising children is something completely different, and it's a good thing. The church teaches us it's a very good thing. Yeah, Bryce, and the culture has so often taught us that families just get in the way of your career or the thing that you're pursuing to make you happy, as an example. So what is true and authentic masculinity, then? It is first to be a virtuous man yourself, to take responsibility for yourself. And then, and I think this is the important thing, Bryce, you begin to take responsibility for others in your life, especially if you're married and you have children. That's where the true masculinity really starts. Toxic masculinity sees any expression of that natural order as something deformed and something that must be eliminated and changed. That's what it is. That's why it's really kind of like a war that's going on right now. And that is why there are people out there that want to see the male become something closer to the image of the female. And that can't happen. It's really not going to happen. What's going to happen is guys are going to check out because they're going to get tired of fighting with women. They're going to get really tired of it and they're just going to check out. You know, Michael, we do bring up the 2019 Parish Life Conference quite often. And I think the reason for that being is because it really was a, uh, perhaps life-changing isn't quite the word, but pretty close. Mm -hmm. And I think back and I look at my thoughts at the time and how they went along with the discussion that we were having. And I said something basically that, you know, I have come up somebody who is young, you know, I'm in the latest generation of people, mm -hmm. you know, the, the generation Z and I've come up in this age of, you know, a lot of people, including myself, saying that I don't know who I am. And I felt that a lot of times that, you know, women are not necessarily my partner or my sister in Christ. They're more or less a competitor. And I know that we've had a lot of that, at least for the last 50 or 60 years, you know, men before me probably got to witness a little bit of this, even if they didn't quite see what was going on. And it's hard because you go one way or you go another way. And one way is, you know, becoming a huge jacked up bodybuilder or you buy a big truck, right? And you make yourself look really good on social media. You only project the good parts of yourself, the yeah. parts that you want to advertise to other people. Right. And you have to prop yourself up that way. And 
I had felt that a lot of young women had gone the same way. They're mm. propping themselves up on social media. They're trying to present an image of themselves that isn't true. And I think it really is a sad reflection on the culture that people feel like they cannot be who they are. Yeah. And maybe they are that way with personal friends, but maybe not all the way. You know, maybe people are really are not being truly authentic because people don't know what that looks like. Yeah, Bryson, as you were talking, I started thinking about how is it exactly that we could have possibly gotten to that point, right, in our culture where where exactly what you described has been happening. And I really think it's because we've let so many lies out there just go without being challenged. Sometimes I think people buy into a lot of the lies that are out there. If you just take what we've been talking about with toxic masculinity as an example, if we think that masculinity is inherently toxic, I mean, that's just a lie. We need to say no to the lie. And you really have to say no. You can't just sit back and say, I don't believe this. They're all wrong. You have to say no. You actually have to fight against it. And I don't mean, again, that you have to enter the political arena, but you have to fight it in terms of, the young men that God brings into your life and being an example for them, being a good and positive example for those men. That's the true cultural rebellion. By rescuing those who are overcome by the lies and that are too inexperienced to know how to beat it, you help them grow up to become the men that God created them to be. Now I want to talk directly to the men who are listening right now and happen to be Orthodox Christians, which is probably the majority of our audience. Guys, we should all know this. We are Orthodox Christians. We are Orthodox Christians. We have the fathers, we have the saints, we have holy tradition. We have absolutely no excuse for sitting on our butts. We really don't. Because if we do, there's not going to be anybody else left to tell other men who are searching for meaning and for truth and to show them the way. We are the last line of defense, guys. If we don't do it, who will? Who? Really, you tell me who. I don't see anybody else. Take a look around. There are Western Christian churches that are crumbling right now, left and right. And we must stand for the truth. It is a crisis, but it also creates real opportunity. As dire as things look right now, this is also the orthodox moment. It really is. It's the greatest opportunity that's given to us to bring life into the world. And there is no greater reward than to actually bring this life into the world and to see someone healed, to see a man really come into his own flourishing. You know, in the Divine Liturgy, the priest says something at the very beginning of the service. He says, it is time for the Lord to act. Most of us probably don't put much thought into the meaning behind that statement, but it brings forward something extremely important. Before the divine liturgy can begin, we have to be there. We have to be ready. In fact, a priest cannot serve a divine liturgy if he's there by himself. There has to be at least one other person there. The Lord will act through us if we do our part. But we must actually do our part. We can't sit back and expect God to do all the work. It doesn't work that way. The Lord wants us to act. He is waiting for us to act as the body of Christ, and to continue the ministry that he started in the world. None of us are expected to change the world on our own. All we're asked to do is to be good and faithful stewards over the little corner of our world that we're in. And when enough of us do that, it becomes a force multiplier for good. We can take back the culture together and change it from the inside out, 
but it has to be a group effort. And the time to act is now. And I think too, Michael, that that does start with yourself. And it does start with taking a risk to make a decision about something. Whether that's a decision to get up on a Sunday and go to a church, which may seem like a very minuscule thing, or a decision to be there for your brother when he's in need, which may be a larger thing. All these things demand action, they demand attentiveness, and they demand that you be authentic. And in our own lives, you know, I look back on my own and where I wish I had taken a risk, Mm. where I wish I had been there for somebody and I wasn't, where I wish that I could have done something for myself, I could have done something for somebody else. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you look around, you see the culture, you know, maybe it does beat down on you. Maybe you're more or less ignorant of it. Maybe you don't see it as much as other people do. But with that, being who you are is one of the things that you can always bring to the table, something that you can always bring to your community, something that you can always bring to your friends. And through that, you do grow. You know, if you lose yourself, you gain yourself. And, you know, you don't want to lose your soul to gain the world. You don't want to lose your soul just to be happy. You don't want to pursue vain things. You want to pursue things that matter and a life that is authentic, a life that is full and a life that is for Christ. And I think looking back on our words tonight, Michael and I both really do consider these things. We really do consider our brother. We really do consider our parish. We really do consider ourselves, not in a selfish way, but in a way that we can build each other up for the rest of those that we love. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We want to remind everybody that we have a website at antiochianmen.org. And we also have a YouTube channel with a lot of great video content, which also can be viewed on our website. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We would appreciate positive review if the platform allows for it. If anyone would like to send us feedback or questions, just send an email to amendomsey at gmail.com. That's A-M-E-N-D-O-M-S-E at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing this podcast, so check back for new episodes coming very soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.